Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dow. I've been a bit busy lately. Um, my my new German podcast about the like U.S. culture called Americana für euch um, is number one and new and noteworthy in history in Germany. And I launched that show. I published the first show um, one month ago as of yesterday. And I launched it on iTunes three weeks ago. And yeah, it's just kind of been hanging out in first place the whole time. And it's if I compare it to History of Alchemy, it has 20 times the downloads in the first month um, compared to History of Alchemy. So and this in German, which is which is awesome. So um, yeah, but I so I'm on episode 24 in one month. So I'll let that sink in for a second. So there's reason to celebrate. So um, as you probably know, this show also exists in German. There's always an English and German version. So and that was kind of kind of an experiment. But um, the ger German version of this show isn't even my smallest show anymore. Uh, so yeah, it's just kind of awesome. But now, so speaking of Germans and uh, uh, Germany, let's talk about the Franks. So here we go. It's it's the Franks that really are the dividing line between the Romans and later medieval Europe. So it's why it's why they don't just get talked about for French history, but the Kingdom of Germany too, or the Holy Roman Empire even. And all of that took shape with and against the Franks. So now are they German or French? Oh, uh, they're German. Um, sorry, that wasn't really my point. The interesting thing for me is that the Franks as Merovingians are dealt with in podcasts dealing with like French history, and there's already a lot out there. So I'm going to emphasize why they are important to Germany, obviously, for this show and the Franks in general. And coming up, when I get to Charles the Great, I'll publish the episode I did with the Lesser Bonapartes podcast. And just so you know, they also did a mini-series on the Franks. It's it's a very different format and very different emphasis because I'm trying to like lay the groundworks for the later Kingdom of Germany and they're and they were kind of going from more from a French perspective. So it's it's great. So go listen to that um, as well. And if you want to hear the Charles the Great episode early, then they've they've already published it. So you can uh, like go listen to that there. Um, where I talk with them and we just talk about Charles the Great and uh, we talk about things that I won't talk about when I do an episode on him. So that's it, it's just awesome. It all fits together. So go over there and listen to that. And there's there's others. There's um, others that deal with Charles the Great or the Franks or Merovingians and, and whatnot. Um, there's a History of France podcast. But like I said, I'm going to take a different spin. So let's get to it. And, and, and actually, we've already talked about the Franks a lot. So if it seems like I'm going fast, remember that we talk about them in the Lombard episode, the Frisian episode, like we contrast the Frisians with the Franks. Um, you know, both of those peoples get conquered by the Franks. 
And even in the Roman miniseries, we talk about the early days of the Franks, and I kept mentioning that this miniseries is coming, and, you know, so here it is. So, who were the Franks? Um, one thing to note, one thing that obviously must be true and is probably important historically is that, at least in their early days and their earliest descriptions of them, um, as far as, you know, when when people, when Romans even met them in battle and that kind of thing, is that the, the early Franks were tough. They had light hair, uh, mustache, like many Germanic tribes, but with Franks it was noted, and tall and, you know, German, basically, like, like a lot of the other Germanic tribes. And they're a West Germanic tribe, so now we're, I should probably point that out because I've been mentioning a lot of East Germanic tribes previously, um, but they all died out, so then, you know, Frisians are West Germanic, etc. And we have these so tall, kind of, you know, light-haired um, people wearing kind of rugged, like, animal furs, chain mail, at least chain mail later on. But, but the interesting thing, like, all Germanic tribes at this point, they learned to really fight from the Romans. And they were tough. I mean, the Romans had a hard time beating them, but, uh, you know, eventually they were a Ferderati, which... So we've talked about all that, even in specifically to the, about the Franks. Um, so I'm not going to repeat all that now. But it's the Romans that teach the Franks how to be so good. And all the Germanic tribes, the Vandals, the Goths, they all learn from the Romans. And they all, you know, they're in, there's Goths in the, in the Roman army. And we had the same thing with Ariovistus and, and Theodoric. And all these people had a roman greek like byzantine roman uh, upbringing or just roman roman upbringing and the franks were the same so um the romans taught the franks how to fight why to fight other germans and then also to fight against the huns and there were many franks in the mili in the roman military so we do have this like continuation of roman military strategy teaching the franks and now the franks using this to keep on a conquering and they also, like the Romans, had a huge influence on European history. The Franks gave rise to modern France, even gave it their name. And in German, Frankreich, short for Franken, like Frankenreich, the Empire of the Franks. It's, it's still what uh, Germans call it, you know, the Frankish Empire, basically. And it gave rise to Germany itself. And, you know, there was, and the Franks are kind of the grounds, like it's the reason for so many of the Franco-German wars over the centuries, like a thousand years of, of warfare between those two countries. Um, you know, they, they, they took over an area that was very Roman and yet Celtic genetically. And let me back up for a second because I'm, I'm going fast because I've talked, I've said all this before. In case you haven't heard the, the relevant history of Germany episodes, or it's been a while, I'm going to repeat myself a little, I think. That's probably for the best. But to set up to set up the Franks properly, I need to repeat some stuff that I've at least mentioned before in passing. And one of those things is that I've done a whole mini-series now, series now on the Celts to explain who the Gauls were before Roman times. And now, so, you know, if, if you're just listening here because you like the history of France, then uh, you've still come to the right place. So I talked about the Celts in, in what is today modern France. And then I talked about um, Gallo-Roman, you know, French, like basically the, the, Ga the Gaelic um, Romanized, even Roman citizens towards the later part of the empire. So, um, but it's, it's Gaul, that Franks conquer first and really set up as their homeland and, and, you know, even creates the seed for modern-day France as opposed to Roman Gaul. They invade, what they invade is still Roman territory. 
So Gaul was not independent, it was part of the Roman Empire, and it's the Franks that would make it the nation it was in the Middle Ages. Uh, same with Germany. So modern-day France was Gaul in Roman times. Cisalpine Gaul was heavily Romanized and were Roman citizens by the times the Franks really became a problem. And we, you know, we covered all this before, so this is all repeat. But by the time um, the Germanic invasions c came, they were definitely Roman. You could, now I would, I mean, we've called them on the show before. We called them Gallo-Roman. That's just how you can refer to them. They built Roman cities, wrote Latin, were instrumental in the history of Christianity in many ways, and even spreading it past the Roman borders. So, again, I've said all this before. Um, there were, there were Gallo-Roman emperors. So these genetically Celtic people were as Roman as any Italian by, by the late empire. Absolutely. And so it's these guys that the Franks invade. That's my point. Franks were Germanic, not Latin, but, but the Gauls were genetically not Latin either. They were, um, and if there's one thing I've been trying to show is that the, the line between Celts and Germanic, though definitely different Indo-European language branches were genetically very blurry at the borders, which is why I did a whole mini-series on the Celts, because, you know, they're, they're the peoples, like if in Bavaria and southern Germany, you heard Celtic languages for thousands of years, not Germanic languages. That's, that's why I covered them. Um, so that, that's, that's my point. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to show that at the time of the Germanic invasions, there was not much of a distinction or at least very blurry lines between Gallic and Roman and even like Italian and Roman. That, that was just a totally different thing than the early days, um, like when I was talking about the Bronze Age Celts. Totally different now. Hundreds of years different. Only genetically Celtic. Um, and now the, it's the Byzantine Greeks that call themselves Roman. So... The Roman Empire still existed for another thousand years in the East, but in the West we call them the Byzantines or the Byzantine Empire. Um, but yeah, so they don't they don't die out. But the Western Empire kind of starts dying out in Frankish times, which I all covered. Um, but but yeah, so we'll you know that's kind of where we left off with the Roman mini series, and that's kind of where we're going to keep going today. So when these Germanic Franks did take over, they just saw themselves as the next group to call themselves Roman, really, especially at first. And, and this was actually true at first, if you go back and listen to the episode on the Ferderati. They were inheriting the local government rule from the church mostly now, which is kind of interesting, um, but they still used Roman titles and all that. I'll, I'll explain this in much more detail with specific examples as we go. But also remember, we already talked about this, so we mentioned the Franks on the episode with Jamie Redfern. That's the great one to listen to. Uh, Jamie Redfern came on as a guest, and I talked about this part of Frankish history a lot on the Roman miniseries, again and again. So yeah, anyways. But what's important to remember is the relationship between the Frankish king and the pope in Rome. That becomes cru crucial. That sets a precedence for all time in the Holy Roman Empire, for example. Um, so this relationship is one thing that I wanted you to take out of all the previous episodes, and we need that knowledge now. Um, the Frankish king and the Pope in Rome. And it's the Franks that would lay the groundwork for this relationship, and it's the Saxons that would continue it, and, that, and then it really becomes in, embedded, because it's outside of one dynasty. It's, it's, that's the German way. That's how the Kingdom of Germany works. It works with the Pope's blessing. Um, yeah. So the, the Roman idea of, a, of empire 
for example, with permission from Rome, gives rise to the Frankish Empire instead of just a kingdom, and the Holy Roman Empire instead of just Kingdom of Germany. And later even, you know, we, we continue with the Austrian Empire, really. The precedence is set again with the Frankish now. And other, uh, and other Eastern European empires, like the Russian Empire, inherit their right as Emperor Tsar, in this case, instead of Kaiser, but the word comes from Caesar, both Kaiser and Tsar come from Caesar. Um, they, they, Russians see themselves as a continuation of Rome too, but this time inheriting through Byzantium, because Byzantium thought, okay, Rome is dead in the West, we're the real Romans now. And the Russian Tsars would make the exact same claim that the German Holy Roman Emperors would. Like, just identical. Just the same reasoning, same logic, just different, you know, different times and at different places. And in the East, of course, instead of, you know, now the Franks were famously the protector of the church for um, the Roman Catholic Church. So that's what the Russians did the same thing for the Eastern Orthodox Church. That, that's basically it. And of course, there's a Greek Orthodox and Romanian and, and Byzantine and all that. The Russians really consider themselves as inheriting this tradition and being the protector of the Orthodox Church. But for the West, it is the Franks that would really redefine what it means to be an emperor, for the medieval period. And medieval empires are based off of this Frankish definition of Roman imperator. And the first name I'm going to throw out there is Clovis, and he's been covered on other podcasts, So, and I'll come back to him next episode, I promise. Um, Gregory of Tours writes of Clovis, and um, so, so Clovis, the thing that I want you to remember now on this episode, on this introductory episode to the Franks, is that Clovis was Salian. And the Salian Franks, the Salians, you could just call them, started in the Hercynian forest where the, the Sala flows into the mine. And we will start there. Anything before that gets really, really murky. We've, we've covered it before. And in any case, when we talk about Franks, there's no point in going before Clovis I, because Clovis I had to beat up other Frankish tribes first, and, and he had to do that anyways, and before he could get to non-Frankish Germanic tribes, and then Gauls and Gallo-Romans. So after Clovis I, when you t start talking about the Merovingians, you're, you're talking about the Franks, and you mean all Franks, because Clovis was a salient Franks, and there were other different Frankish dukes, etc., all set up. Um, but Clovis really takes over, unites the Franks under the Salian kind of dynasty. Um, in German history, they say, you know, there's the Salia, the dynasty, and then there's the Saxons, and then there's others. And then, you know, they break, they differentiate between these first Salian Franks and later Frankish, because there's so many Frankish dynasties all over Europe. Um, after Charles the Great, for sure, but even sooner, but after Charles the Great, all, all of Europe has... Frankish Salian blood in their royal family. All of them, including, you know, England, all, just all of them, Spain, Eng all, all, every single one. Um, to this day, even, they have, they, the, the, Charles the Great is one of the descendants of every single royal family in Europe, and including Russia, I mean, you know, Russia died out, but even, including the Russian czars and all that. Anyways, my point is that after this, is, it all becomes very simple because when you say Clovis, you mean Merovingians, you mean Franks, um, it just gets much simpler. So Salian equals all this right now. Um, as the Saxons claimed to descend from Macedonians, so the Franks claimed to be from Troy. And by the way, where does the term Frank come from? So that's not really clear. It could be, it could mean the, like a point from a spear or a spear point. Um, it could also mean free, like free man. 
uh, but that's not very likely, I, I think. I don't remember why I wrote that down, but um, uh, honestly, no one really knows. And it's a waste of time to go through all the theories. Um, it just, yeah, it doesn't matter. But what I did mention before is that they were a major thorn in Rome's side for centuries. And we've mentioned some of their incursions in earlier episodes. Um, Magdentius was Frank, like Roman. Um, Silvanius was emperor in Cologne for 33 days and 355, Frank. Um, Arogast, so these are like really old Franks that still played a role in the Roman world. And I have to, again, for like the fourth time, just mention the year 406. On, on New Year's Eve 406, um, this, this romantic notion of all these Germanic tribes flooding over the frozen Rhine. And it was just a horrible day to be Roman, but a very romantic one if you study German history. Um, and the Franks were among these. And it was the Franks that over the next couple centuries, really, or century and a half, start to really come out on top of all of these that... Um, are now in Belgium and France and that kind of thing. Um, so much so that we mentioned in the previous episode that other ones died out. Franks were just too damn German to do that. They just, you know, they changed all of those around them instead of the other way around. Um, but in those days, we had, you know, Goths defending Gaul, basically. So it was, you know, Romans. It w I mean, yeah, to say they were fighting Romans was a stretch. It was Western Germanic tribe, the Franks, fighting an Eastern Germanic tribes. Uh, the Goths and Vandals, etc., who had gotten to France first. So, it, it, you know, to say they were they were invading the Roman Empire, while factually accurate, uh, doesn't really paint a, a good picture, like a, you know. But the the Franks settle the area around northern France, I know that area, and have sort of, you know, create this structured government. They start to emulate the Romans. They, they rule wisely for generations, and, and so we see, like, Salic law. That's the, the Salian law in Belgium. And Belgium is becomes very important for the Franks. That becomes their homeland. But there are other parts of Germany today still called Franken, like uh, Nassau, Hesse, Unterfranken, Oberfranken. That's kind of the, the core region where the old Franks came from. Or at least where they... And then they also where they reconquered against the Saxons later... So over the Franks, over the centuries, at some point, we, we differentiate between the ones that stayed put in Thuringia, in, in Thuringia um, like the Thuringian Franks, though that's Franken, that's to like, today there's a Franken in Bavaria, it's a region of Bavaria, but they're not Bavarians, trust me, they're Franks, and I'll let you know, but those are very different than the Franks that streamed across Gaul, that's what I'm saying. And we get a man named Clodion, who's maybe Merovig's dad. And Merovic, I'll get to in a second, but we, we do now definitely, these are salient Franks I'm talking about. And out of this group of Franks, well, now we can just call them Merovingians after Merovic. But those two are just so murky and hard to find sources on. Um, 451, we have, you know, the Huns and, and Attila and the Romans need help. We have the Battle of Chalon. I think I mentioned all this before. Um, but Merovig died in 457 or 458. And we have Childeric, Merovig's son. And if I'm moving really fast, that's because on this part, go listen to Lesser Bonaparte's if you want to hear more. They they talk about some of this. Um, the point is, it's just so murky. There's not a whole lot I can say for certain about this. And I want to, I want to keep moving. Um, but we do have the, the start of the Merovingian dynasty. That's the that's why I even bring up these murky characters. They are the the fathers of the Merovingian dynasty, 
And now don't get that confused. It's not the Carolingian. So after this, this comes the Carolingians with Charles the Great, etc. So um, it's the corrupt kind of sedated Merovingians that the it's the Carolingians that take over. So this is before that. But this is way before that where the Merovingians make a name for themselves first. It's not it's not their declining days yet. They got to go out of conquering and, and that they do. So way before Charles the First. Um, we have Clovis the first, and Clovis is the one, and Gregory of Tours, again, does a great history and, and is kind of the primary source here. Um, one, one little side note is another one of my sources, and this document, I, I watched this documentary in German just to kind of get a feel for how do Germans look at um, Childeric, uh, um, and in this documentary, he had blonde kind of a brony tail you know what I mean like where the side of the head is back is all shaved and then the top is and I was like ah oh, that is weird that is not how I would imagine a tough Germanic Frank with this little dinky ponytail and just kind of walking around ah oh, just weird like a walking around like a frat boy carrying a sword basically um I don't even know how to say bro, brony tail in German so I'm not sure how to translate this concept um, or even frat boy, like they don't even know. But it was a German documentary, so I'll, I'll let it slide. Maybe it was historically accurate. A lot of um, Germanic tribes maybe did shave parts of their head, and and um, to the Romans looked very different. And they also had, yeah. So maybe I don't know. But in this documentary, all these Franks are running around with the same haircut, and it's all this. So in this TV show, they all have their hair up in these really high up ponytails, with the rest of their head shaved below. Um, yeah. So, okay. So Childeric, that's Clovis's dad, by the 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 blonde guy with the brony tail. Clovis's dad. Um, he dies. Clovis was only sixteen when he died. And what I found was more interesting was that centuries later, the tomb of Childeric was found, and yet, so the Frank, the arms, like the Roman coins, gold ring stuff, other stuff, maybe Bassina's stuff. Um, these were all given to the then monarch of France at the time of the find. And who was that monarch who, who ruled at the time? It was the Sun King himself, Louis XIV. So they, they made it through the French Revolution, and you can still go look at Childeric and Bassina's stuff. But the Sun King took all these, you know, kind of artifacts and made them heirlooms and kind of um, you know, use these as, as almost as relics saying, now look, this is like the very first French king kind of thing. Like we, we now, this is how good our, you know, our roots go back this far. And that's just, you know, a great sense of pride for a, a royal family. And Louis Fourteenth probably was not related to Childeric, although oddly enough, you know, through enough odds, odds and corners, um, Carolinians were definitely uh, related to Merovingians. And Louis the Fourteenth was absolutely related to Charlemagne. Every every monarch was in the centuries after him. So that means that yeah, I mean this this was an an distant ancestor of Louis the Fourteenth. You know through through distant cousins and that kind of thing. Not like father son. That's not what I mean. But but related yes. So you you can still go see that stuff today. That was maybe the most interesting thing for me about Childeric is that it it survived and it was important in in later French history, and yeah, it's kind of neat. So so definitely, 
the French definitely see the Merovingians and the and the Franks as their predecessors. Sorry, as the Kingdom of France, just as the Kingdom of Germany did too. So that 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 was just really interesting to me that um, a French king would just be like, yeah, this Frankish. And, and remember, so Franks definitely had a German spoke a Germanic language, not like French, which is much more Latinized. Um, so yeah, really interesting. The, the seed was planted uh, for Gaul to become France, basically, with the Merovingians. And in the last episode, we saw the Germanic tribes that died out. So Franks are just doing fine to this day, really. So what, what made them different? And this is what will di differentiate this introductory uh, episode from the, the, the rest, is right now I want to give you a splash of, like, culture and a feeling for what they were like before I go through the king-to-king -king and battle-to-battle -battle, um, kind of thing. So we did, we already did that before with other Germanic tribes, but the Franks are interesting because I kind of saved them for last in that regard because they were just culturally, like if you were talking to a Frank, they must have just been so obviously Frankish, like this Germanic, um, you know, with mustache and long hair, maybe brony tail, I don't know. Um, but they influenced those around them. They also, you know, Latinized their language and language and openly and obsessively imitated Roman customs and law, but they also bent it and made them their own. That's the difference between medieval France and, you know, Roman Gaul. Uh, really? Yeah, that's the very definition. So they're in, they're interested, they're interesting because they had this early relationship with Rome. Rome um, like many other tribes, but in the migration period, Rome allied themselves with Franks against the others, against the Vandals and Goths and that kind of thing. So Franks really stood out and stuck around and had Roman blessing more than Roman more than they were their Roman enemies. Um, even if many of them moved, they had a Frankish, like a very strong Frankish identity, already very proud of their past battles and, you know, went a conquering through Gaul as just, you know, this is, we're taking our land right, we're taking our Frederati back kind of thing. And once they got to France, they were very stationary. Um, they were just the latest people to come in. But they were the last, I would say, when, I mean, Germans kept trying, English kept trying, but it was the Franks that really made France, France. That's where we get the name. It's the very definition. So, and, and we see them writing down their Germanic laws early in areas that are today around Belgium. So that's another core area for the Franks. And it was already like centuries of bodies of work, this Frankish law, when it came time to like to really be Salic law and under Clovis and formalized. And some, some of the areas to mention are like Batavia, Brabant, Hainault, I already mentioned, Flanders. These, these were the Frankish areas before the invasion of Clodonion in, in 447. And Franks, the, the Frank noblemen were kind of known as the Ludes, or Loides, maybe. I'm trying to pronounce it correctly, but I'm not sure how to... Yeah, they... Um, Lesser Bonaparte just said lewds, I think. So th these were men of religion and counsel, quote unquote. Like they, these were the, the earliest form of their nobilities was, again, not, don't think Druid, that's Celtic. They're all, they all died out. Romans like genocided them away. So, but, but these loides would be, would get together. And in German, then you also have this council, which like rat, so you have a rat is very, a, a famous word in this kind of um, hierarchy. And we talked about that in the Frisian episode, for instance. But so the Franks had their loides and that became more and more formalized, a formalized nobility. And 
after Clovis, we get the Salic law. It becomes Frankish law after Clovis. He, he just says it's, it's the law of all the Franks now. And this eventually morphs into Merovingian law, which, you know, then we get, I mean, Charles the Great, I don't want to jump ahead yet, but Charles the Great does another great reform and um, all that stuff. But these, these start to get written down. And, and based on this Frankish law, I should, I should say, I should emphasize this one, because I've already mentioned Lex Burgundonium, Lex, um, oh, you name it, Fri Fri the Friesen one, Frisoronium, or whatever. Those are all modeled on Frankish law. So this is really the first. This is the codified one that all the others are, are being influenced by. And the earliest ones are um, 5th century. The extant copies that we have are 5th century. And these laws, just to give you some more examples, I've already mentioned some throughout the episodes, but they're, um, they, they cover acts like crimes against individuals along with punishments and then alternatives which the community may allow instead of the punishment, which takes us to the term, and I've been waiting for this one forever, forever and ever on the show, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Wehrgeld. And Wehr in this, so it's like, money against a person. You know the term werewolf? Like, that means man-wolf. So in that old Germanic wer, um, and wer also still means who, you know, and the, the question, like, who? Um, yeah. So wergeld is um, money, against, you know, that you, in repayment against bodily harm or, you know, against a, a crime against an individual. And it's a very well-known aspect of Germanic law. So if you're listening to the show, I expect you to understand this too. This 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 is totally different from from later um, imprisonment type laws and that kind of thing. And and at its base, it's the idea of money being paid for redemption of a crime. And German law, just like German law today, kind of basically, has two sides. It's it's the crime against the person, okay, but also the crime against the community as a whole. And I would say this still exists. Uh, in Germanic, in German law, in modern German law, this concept definitely exists. It's not just how was the victim um, harmed, but how was the community harmed? And um, in old law, it was how can we heal the community? Now it's like, yeah, the lawyers and the state get their piece too, and and um, are also represented as an entity. There's the victim, there's the um, the perpetrator, and then there's also the state. Who, who you know, you have to look out for the state. Um, which doesn't really, it definitely doesn't exist like that in the U.S. So vindication was the norm, um, very much in contrast to Roman law. So vindication of the individual could be um, a, a defense for a smaller community, a way for a leader to save face, just, just one example. This Wehrgeld had a scale based on the nature of the crime and also on the status of the injured person, and that's super important. So it was a class system in a way. The, this punishment worked in a class system. If you hurt a nobleman, it was much worse than hurting a slave. And slaves existed. I'll get back to that. So freedom, or peacemaking money, which sounds a lot like freedom, was a sort of fee you'd pay the, the, the state. So you'd literally pay the state freedom. Sounds weird, but that's, yeah, that's where all those terms come from. <laughs> so a judge would then finalize the deal and sometimes could also double or triple the Wehrgeld fine. Like, in the last minute, he could be like, okay, not only is he guilty, but I'm also gonna, um, yeah, no, I don't think, I think he can afford, a, you know, the triple, the triple fine, basically, and, and so the judge could do this. And so then he would just, you know, the, then the judge 
I don't know if he actually had a gavel, but I imagine then he you know, does it, does what do you see a judge doing today. But um, if you're a nobleman, uh, like Aloidus in Clovis's time, later Merovingians had noblemen as criniti, or people that were used to or allowed to wear their hair long, kind of. Is that that's where that came from? So they were they had the right to wear their hair the the, the hair long. So hippie noblemen, I guess, um, maybe even mullets. But after after the long haired guys, it was the Antrustians or Leti, uh, Lite also. Um, these had a higher Wehrgeld associated with them, is my point, if they were the victim of a crime, for instance. And the lowest were the slaves, and I'll get back to that in a second. And But in that case, it depended on the worth in the eyes of their owner. So there was still, it was still a scale, always, even among slaves. And Wehrgeld did not apply to crimes against kings or public crimes. Then it was, uh, there was, a, the death penalty absolutely existed. And I would say in those cases, that's what she got. Um, but there was, there was stockades. And, and again, it was Frankish law that kind of influenced medieval law in many areas. So, um, but we'll, we'll get back. That's, oh, whoa, I don't want to, I don't want to jump ahead that far yet. So there's also the Urteil, which is just a German word for judgment, really. Um, today in the modern German, yeah, I mean, in the modern German word, it would say verdict. Um, it could also mean like sentence, like the, the sentencing. It's the Urteil. Um, to judge someone is Urteil. To, yeah, you know, jemanden Urteilen, to use it as a verge, verb, it's like that's judging someone. So, but in the old Frankish sense, it meant the ordeal. Kind of, it makes me think of the Amish. Um, but yeah, I would, so I wouldn't exactly call it a trial in the modern sense, but it was an ordeal. So it would include an appeal to the deity, so there's a religious aspect, especially if there was no witnesses. And this is so important. Hold on, just pay super attention for a minute. In the oldest sense, God would be the judge of this, okay? Ding, ding, ding. And the church was fine with this aspect of Frankish law and sanctioned it, which leads us to ordeal by boiling water. A priest blesses water, making it holy water, and a stone hung from a cord would be submerged, submerged three times, each time deeper in the water, and the person had to drag out the stone or ring, okay? And his arm would be bandaged for three days. Now remember, boiling water, okay? Now, if it didn't heal his, his arm or the hand, then he was guilty. And or Now, there's another thing called ordeal by cold water, which was... Um, now, this survived as a test for witchcraft. That, that's why I wanted you to pay attention. So this old, um, th this comes all the way back, what the Inquisition used to do and all that horrible medieval stuff. Um, it kind of got bastardized from this really old Frankish thing. And so if there was no witnesses, how do you know if someone's guilty or innocent? Well, you let God judge. And the church allowed it and took this over from the Franks, not the other way around. Round. Roman law did not have any of this. No, no, no. Or uh, I don't know. I don't want to say. I don't want to say make absolute statements like that. But um, not not in this sense. Not the way the Franks did it. So ordeal by cold water. That's yeah. That's Frankish and Salic law. Like Monty Python's think you know witches float is that is actually in Frankish law as a way to determine innocence when there were no witnesses. Yep, that's where that came from. That that's not fictional in Monty Python. That that that's Frankish law, and the arms were tied to his leg. So think, yeah, you know, and and kind of like hog hog tied, and if he floated, he was guilty. 
And this, so wait a minute. So if he floated, he was guilty, right? If he sank, he was drowned. So I guess if he sank, hopefully someone jumped in and fished him out in time. And they didn't know mouth to mouth or CPR back then. So yeah, it's pretty rough. Like even the trial was like, oh, he sank and died. So yay, he was innocent. Wow. Um, anyways, then there was also ordeal of the cross, where basically two people accusing each other would hold out their arms. And okay, this is this is like a stamina or a endurance contest, really. So the first to drop their arms loses. And yeah, so imagine who imagine if something really serious depended on that. And it's just so ordeal of the cross. It's seriously who has longer endurance. Um, if I were if I were a Frank, I would just be practicing that all the time, just holding my arms straight out, and I would just be getting those muscles toned. So if I got to complain about some somebody else, I can hold my arms up longer. Seriously, <laughs> I mean, I think I would do that. Um, then there's hold a heated bar in your hand, or walk barefoot over hot iron bars or plates. Um, then there's a straight up ordeal by fire, which is, you know, walk with with, with a consecrated host in your hands between two fires. And if you're innocent, the cracker will keep you from burning. All right. And in really tricky cases, you flip open the Bible to a random page and read the first sentence, like basically as an oracle. And then there's also ordeal by single combat. And by the way, I hope that Bible one is meant to give you a judgment. I don't, I, that one sounds tricky to me. But okay, so um, ordeal by single combat, you lose a hand. Um, um, yeah, the, the, the defeated com combatant would lose a hand, sometimes buried alive. That's what's, that's the outcome of single combat. It wouldn't always be that they die in, in, in the fight, like it was a fight to the death. Um, because then you make them a murderer, you know, so it's two people accusing each other. Why would you make them a murderer? You make one of them a murderer. No, you, you, you know, you, you fight until one of them surrenders and then the loser loses a hand or is walled up alive. But then that's a, you know, judge community decision, not one person. Anyways, so, um, that this one, the single combat and the ordeal by cold water lasted the longest. Charlemagne, for example, banned the ordeal by cross. So me holding up, practicing holding up, up my arms would only work for, um, yeah, until Charlemagne's time. Okay, so slavery. Slavery was on the books. Merovingian slavery and how a master may liberate his slave. Um, all that was on the books. But, but let's, so uh, moving from, from laws to slavery, let's get a glimpse of what that actually meant. Uh, to the Franks. So slaves were not what we'd call slaves in the modern term, like, um, no, not at all. Not at all like chattel slavery in the in the South, in, in the Southern United States, for instance. The, a slave would live in their own house. It'd be more like an indentured, servant, uh, an indentured servant. They worked for their master sometime, and the rest of the time they worked the land for themselves. And they just had it a bit tougher than a freedman, basically. It was rare for a slave to be beaten, so, I mean, that would be punishable. They weren't slaves in the Roman sense, even. So, you couldn't just go send them off to be gladiators. That's, Franks didn't have that. Franks did not have that kind of power. Serfdom definitely wasn't like a farmer employee kind of thing. Um, in times of famine, they were always hit the worst. So, the, this they were kind of serfs, and France has a long history of serfdom. And let's move on, because we'll get back to this many, many, many times. 
but I'll, I'll stop with this, okay, for right here, with the introduction to Franks, and I'll continue with all of this next time. But there's just a lot to cover. So I just, this is the early, we, I've already covered the earliest parts in previous episodes. So if you, if that's what you're here for, go back and listen to some of the episodes on the 406, uh, the invasion of 406 and the, and um, the Frisians and the Longbards and all those people, because I'm going to mention them being conquered very quickly in future episodes, because I already mentioned all those guys before. That's what all that setup was for. Now it's going to be fast, um, dense, fast Frankish stuff. And this is part one of the Franks miniseries. So then, then we get to the Saxon ones. Those are already written, ready to go. So buckle down, here we go. Um, the History of Germany podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. And the podcast of the month is David Crowther's History of England podcast. Great show, go listen to that. Um, I think Bohemian even did a guest guest episode for, for David once. And... If you do speak German, go check out my new Americana für euch episode. Follow me on Twitter at, at AmericanaPod, um, besides my usual at Podcastnik, where I, where I tweet in English, but, um, and I retweet all that stuff. Yeah, it's all connected, but uh, if, if you want to improve your German, go follow my German Twitter account. That, that's my first only German Twitter account. And I got to mention... Uh, absolutely on on uh, podcastnick.com or go directly to bohemican.com a lot of new content out for the bohemican podcast that um, pete and i've been working on and pete's been working for months now to get videos out for the youtube channel and that's all on bohemican or on podcastnick but also uh, you can just go to the bohemican youtube channel directly and if you haven't seen our video on the 70th anniversary of the liberation of pilsen you absolutely should. I go, we, we show up there and um, we get a lot out of that trip. We went there for two days and we talked to, to General Patton's granddaughter. We got that on camera. It's a short little 10 minute, but but Pete went all out. I wore my grandfather's uniform. Um, Pete went all out in the editing. It took him like nine months to edit this little 10 minute, 15, 20 minute, whatever it is, video together. It's amazing. It's documentary quality seriously go watch that 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 has to do with with german history for sure i even speak german at one part where my grandfather probably rolled over in his grave because i was wearing his uniform um anyways so definitely go check out bohemican.com and the and the bohemican youtube channel and my editor uh mr pancake his real name is mr Pfannkuchen, um is is off in germany shamelessly on a two-week trip so then they should then they should be coming out pretty quick like maybe weekly or so oh and thanks a lot to those i i I know i have seen a couple more reviews on itunes thank you so much for that and um as always thank you for listening franken mit schnurrbärte there you go Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.